You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Hey. Lots of you are from non-liturgical backgrounds, so we're going to do that just one more time. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. That's how we do it in the old Anglican church. Christ is risen. It's Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. It's the day the revolution began. It's the day that birthed the new creation. It's the day that paved the pathway for us to receive our resurrection bodies and live forever in a creation that cannot fall. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. And I feel like we've probably got to uh, lift our Easter game. This isn't a criticism of us in particular, though maybe we could accuse Anglicans in general of being a little solemn on the best days of the year. But... In general, if what we believe about this day is true, then the smile can't fade from our face today, irrespective of what's going on for you. I know some of you are facing really challenging times at the moment. Uh, I know myself, I'm feeling very weary at the moment. But if all of this is true, that we believe about Jesus, that death couldn't hold him down, but he is risen, then we need to lift our Easter game. We need to start celebrating a little more when we roll around to this time of year. I want to read you a quote from N.T. Wright, and uh, this is him kind of uh, geeing us up a little bit as a church. So, in Surprised by Hope, which is a book about the resurrection, about uh, what it means for Christians that Jesus was raised and so we will one day be raised ourselves in a new creation. Um, Uh, He writes this. Can you guys pull this up for me? It's a quote from N.T. Wright. Also known as Tom Wright. I'm just filling time here. All right, there we go. So this is a slightly long quote, and I don't want to lose you. You Just tune in. Here's what he says. Easter is about the wild delight of God's creative power. Not very Anglican, perhaps. But at least we ought to shout hallelujahs instead of murmuring them. Easter is about the real Jesus coming out of the real tomb and getting God's real new creation underway. It ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. If Lent, he says, is a time for giving things up, Easter ought to be a time to take things up. Champagne for breakfast again? Well, of course! We should be taking steps to celebrate Easter in creative new ways, in art, literature, children's games, poetry, music, dance, festivals, bells, special concerts, anything that comes to mind. This is our greatest festival. Take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke, nothing else. Take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. 
You don't have a Christianity. And as Paul says, you are still in your sins. What we've been doing in this series over the last four services that we've had, we've been looking at the atonement, what Jesus achieves for us on the cross, and we've been seeing it through the lenses of the great global worldviews, the three great global worldviews. And what we've been seeing is kind of humanity's best effort to deal with sin, the reality of sin. It's humanity's best effort on a global scale to take the reality of life, which is hard, which is shot through from the beginning with suffering, which from the day you are born, there is a kind of countdown timer on your life. In, reality, in the reality of death itself, humanity has done its best to deal with brokenness. And I really want you to hear me kind of honouring that. I hope it hasn't come across during this series that I've been disparaging the global ways of dealing with this problem. I, I don't. I think we're doing our best. So throughout the series, we started off looking at the, the culture of the Middle East to the Far East, the, that culture which is sort of summarised by shame and honour, shaped by shame and honour. The major problem for people in that whole region of the world is shame. And they respond to the reality of shame by doing their best to avoid it and by heaping up and accumulating honour for themselves, for their family, for their community. If you grew up in a Middle Eastern through to Far Eastern culture and a shame honour culture, then you will conceive of yourself mainly as a, an accumulator of honour, not just for yourself, but for your whole community. You will conceive of moral right and wrong in terms of the effect it will have not just on me, the self, but on us, the community. And they're doing their best. It's natural in a world where darkness is represented by shame for us to do our best to accumulate honour, status, reputation. Those are things that can be worked at and earned. And all of it is in response to the reality of a world that's shot through with shame. The problem is, well, there are lots of problems with that. What if you're not in a position to earn any status? What if you're so far down the rungs of the ladder that you have no hope of ever accumulating anything for yourself? What if you're a slave because your dad was a slave and his dad was a slave and his granddad was a slave? It's all pretty hopeless. There also comes a problem in our own culture when people from the East come into the West. You have this collision, this, this um, confusion of what honour really is. I saw this a lot in the church I worked at before I came here. I worked for four years in Doncaster, which has, along with Box Hill, just down the road, an enormous Chinese population. Like, it, it's got to be in the majority in a lot of parts of that area of Melbourne. And so you would have a lot of uh, 
ABCs, Australian-born Chinese. These were the kids that I was doing ministry with for the most part. They were born in Australia. They sounded like me. They looked like their parents. And so they, they were constantly trying to figure out who they were. Like, were they Australian? Were they Chinese? Their parents were, had no doubt they were Chinese. And they were going to remain Chinese, right? We were going to, we're going to uphold the traditions of our people, which include the accumulation of honour and the shedding of shame. The problem came when parents of Australian-born Chinese would have a particular map for them, a way that their life should proceed. Normally it was characterised by very good marks at school and then a professional career as a doctor or a lawyer or something prestigious. This is how you accumulate honour, not just for you but for us. The problem came when these kids who were brought up in Australia had a different idea about what honour was. Like, what is honour? What is the standard that we're working towards here? For them, they'd grown up in Australia, so they'd been taught from, the, from the, their youngest years, honour is really about doing what makes you happy. It's about following your heart. It's about doing the career that you're passionate about. Their parents had no concept of that. Career isn't about doing what you want. It's about doing what will bring honour. And so you have this collision. It's not a criticism. They're just doing the best they can with what they've got. Shame and honour. We looked at fear and power cultures. Most of Latin America, sub-Saharan Africa, Pacific Islands, anywhere where you have a a tribal culture, you have this understanding of the world which is characterised by fear and power because the world is governed not by human rulers so much as spiritual powers. The universe is populated by these powers that are beyond the scope of our sight and our reach. All we can do in response to them is try to kind of manipulate them try and groom them to be good to us. We'll do this by having a whole long list of taboos that we stay away from. A whole lot of superstitions. Whoa! See, now was that a, one of the powers at work? Because I was make, I'm not making fun of these powers, alright? I'm just... <laughs> a whole lot of superstitions to obey. A whole lot of rites and rituals. If we do things in the right order, if we kill the chicken and draw the right circles around it, again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I'm not, I'm not being condescending. I'm just saying if we do these rituals in the West, we just have different sets of rituals. Like, you remember I told you about keeping all the finger tapping even, depending on which finger tap first. Like all of this is a way of managing anxiety, fear. It's about recognizing that the world is a dangerous place. You live at any time in human history in a tribal culture and you are in danger. Your tribe isn't as strong as the tribe next door, you're in danger. We have a whole congregation that meets here in the afternoon from South Sudan. They are living this every single day in that nation. Tribal conflict, danger, fear. If you can get the powers to be on your team instead of their team, then why wouldn't you? 
The problem, of course, as we know, whether it comes to slaughtering chickens or obsessive compulsive rituals, we know, all of us who have suffered from anxiety, we know the more that we focus on controlling the uncontrollable, the more we are enslaved to fear. The more we realize we don't have control. It just agitates our anxiety. And they're just, again, they're doing the best they can with what they've got. In the West, places like Australia, Europe, United States, in the West, we conceive of life in terms of guilt and innocence. We have a legal framework that is absolutely ingrained in who we are. Remember I told you, and I've been told, I don't know this for a fact, I've never been to the Middle East, but I'm told that if you go swimming in a pool in the Middle East and the lifesaver blows his whistle, all the white people turn around. Because all the white people have been trained to think of life in terms of guilt and innocence. You hear a whistle, you hear a, a, a siren, your immediate thought is, have I done something wrong? We conceive of life in terms of guilt and innocence and we're aware of the fact that from our earliest memory we've been accumulating guilt because we've all been doing the wrong thing all the time. And I think the way, the modern way we deal with this, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. How do you deal with guilt when it's so obvious that you're guilty? You can own up to it. But that is really painful and humiliating. So here's how I think we're doing it these days in the West. What I think what we're doing is we are pursuing this imaginary self that exists somewhere that is pure and spotless and good. That's what I mean when I say, I just, I, I want to follow my heart. I want to, you hear this all the time. You might hear it over morning tea. <laughs> just test yourself. I just am trying to find my true self. Be yourself. Find yourself. Western people travel over the, all over the world trying to find themselves. This is what they're, this is what they're trying to find. They're, tr they're trying to find their pure self, not the dirty, filthy, guilty self that they have and have always had. If I can just find myself, I will be that great lover, that great mother, that great other than the thing that I am. This is self-help culture. Every self-help book is sold to you on this premise. You can find that self that exists out there somewhere. You've just, you, if you put these things in place, then you might be able to find it. And so rather than dealing with the reality of guilt, which is humiliating and painful, we spend our lives searching for the undiscoverable self, the pure self the good Jono, out there somewhere. I'm not knocking it. 
I'm not even judging it. I'm just saying we're, we're doing the best that we can with the stuff that we've got. I think you see this in Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning of the Bible, right at the first sin, right? You have, you have shame and fear and guilt just plunging into the world. Up until this point, we didn't need a new creation through Jesus' resurrection because we had the first one. It was perfect. The whole world is just humming with harmony, peace, love, joy. God walks with his creatures. There's no barrier of shame or fear or guilt. People made in God's image just chat with God. And then that great fall happens. And you see Adam and Eve as our first parents. You see them doing what we've done ever since. They just do the best they can with what they've got in response to a world which is suddenly full of shame and fear and guilt. Let me read this to you. Genesis 3, 6-10. This is what happens. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, all that good stuff. Except that God told her, don't eat of this. Why? God's commands are always given for our good. The best life possible is a yes to all of God's commands. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord of God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Afraid, naked, hid. It's just fear, shame, and guilt. It's fear, shame, and guilt. And their response is just to do what they can with what they've got. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, what we've got is the best we've got. And we're doing the best we can. You've got millennia of human civilization building up these mechanisms to deal with a world that's busted. And each one of us in this room, I mean, I know we have people from those, those Eastern cultures, the shame honor culture, we have people in this room from fear power cultures and certainly from, from guilt and innocence cultures and then all of us have a little bit of each of those things in us anyway. We'll try anything to deal with the reality of life, which is hard and broken. I'll give you an extreme example of dealing with this. You see extreme examples like this all of the time. I'm reading a book at the moment, and the, the guy references this, uh, 
This is, the, the, this is a critique of the Western way of dealing with things, right? It's the denial of guilt, the, 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 <laughs> the illusion that somewhere out there the pure me exists. There's this guy, um, he's a British doctor, he's a prison doctor. He writes under a pseudonym, which I can't remember, but I think his name is, um, is uh, Anthony Daniels. And uh, he tells this story of meeting with a guy in prison who had been arrested because he threw acid on his girlfriend's face. Uh, which is horrific. He threw acid on his girlfriend's face. And the doctor met with him and said to him, why did you do that? And the guy just denied it. He's like, I didn't do it. I don't know how she got acid on her face. It wasn't me that did it. And then the doctor did some more investigation over the coming weeks and months, and he finds out that this guy has done this before. He has thrown acid on his, uh, on his girlfriend's face before. And so he goes back to him and he says, Seriously, I know that you did this. Why did you do it? And the guy responded by saying, Okay, I did it, but it's not who I am. It's not who I am. It wasn't the real me. So in the West, we, 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 I know this is an extreme example, but it has its echoes all through what we do. We have this great capacity for illusion and delusion, where we can, like, we can manage the kind of cognitive dissonance it requires for me to do something, but to so distance myself from it that I can say, yes, I did it, the body of me did it, but it wasn't really me that did it. It wasn't the true self. That's not who I am. Guys, we're doing the best we can, but what we're doing isn't really working very well. We don't have the materials. We don't have the power to deal with the kind of world that we're living in and the kind of people that we are. Remember, sin is not just the wrong things I do, it's the person I am. We have this doctrine in Christianity called total depravity. And we say people, humanity, from birth, is totally depraved. That doesn't mean we can't do anything good. We do good things all the time, praise God. We're made in His image. We're capable of beautiful things. Total depravity says every part of me is stained. Every part of me my heart, my mind, my soul, my spirit, not just my actions, but my thoughts. All of it is stained. And we have spent thousands and thousands of years trying to scrub it in different ways, trying to dress it up in different ways, accumulating honor, begging for power, Denying guilt. And all I'm saying is, we're doing our best, but our best isn't enough. It's just not enough. 
We have this illusion in the post-enlightenment West that through the sheer power of Darwinian evolution, we will one day be all that we want to be. It's just the same delusion as the guy in prison. You know what difference this day makes? You know what difference the empty tomb makes? If Jesus really has conquered death, risen again and paved the way for us to follow him into resurrection life, new creation, if all of that is true, If Jesus really is raised from the dead, then it is God's guarantee. It's his stamp of approval. It's his vindication that everything that Jesus did in suffering for us on the cross to overcome shame and fear and guilt, all of that was enough. That's what God is saying when he raises Jesus from the dead. If there was even like half a percent of his work on the cross that wasn't sufficient, wasn't enough, then he'd be still in the tomb to this day. Bones turned to dust and covered by millennia. The fact that he is risen tells us that God guarantees us that he has dealt forever with our shame our fear, and our guilt. Without that, we're just wasting our time. I am so sorry to you. I am so sorry if I'm deluded. If we're just playing games and Jesus is still in in the tomb, I owe you an apology, right? I'm I'm owning my guilt as a Western culture kind of guy. I'm owning it, right? I've wasted your time. There couldn't be a bigger waste of your time than getting together with a bunch of people you don't know and probably don't like and singing praise to a dead, false messiah. I'll tell you the biggest waste of your time, any time you've spent praying. We're going to do that later on. Doug's going to come and pray with us. And it's all just nonsense. Unless. Unless Jesus is risen, then we're just doing the best we can with what we've got. My son Judah was home the other day, home from school, and he was like the bar for being too unwell to go to school is now so low. Like his teacher told him, if you sneeze, you must stay home. She's pretty anxious about getting COVID, all right? And uh, she's just doing the best she can with what she got, dealing with fear and powers beyond her control, all right? So, so now it is really easy for them to get a pass to stay home. So he was home, but he didn't really need to be. And so because of that, we kind of put him to work a little bit. And uh, we noticed that the, the stairs at our house, these wooden stairs, were really pretty dusty. And... Um, and 
Yeah, so we got him to vacuum the stairs. It's fair enough. And uh, he's got a little vacuum, and I'm in my den. I'm home doing some work at this stage. And all I can hear is the sound of the vacuum cleaner and his little voice going, I can't do it. <laughs> this vacuum cleaner doesn't even work. And then like blaming it on mum because she sheds like 400,000 hairs a minute. <laughs> and no, no, one was, no one was judging him. He was just doing the best he could with what he had. And that's what we're all doing. The point of this whole series is that rather than doing the best we can with what we've got, God is beckoning us to apply to our lives individually, corporately, the finished work of Jesus. No more striving and trying and vacuuming and growling. No more frustration. I'm not saying there is no more shame or fear or guilt. That's the new creation. We're living in the, in the present day one. I am saying that we have power available to us beyond the scope of what we have in ourselves. Jesus really did live a perfect life, the life that we could never live, a life without sin. And he really did die on the cross, the death we should have died, the death of shame and fear and guilt. And on this day, we remember that he was raised again, raised as we will be, raised to a life where there is no more sickness, no more crying, no more death, no more pain for the former things have passed away, including our feeble attempts to deal with the brokenness of life. Let me just finish by sharing with you a couple of things that have really occurred to me throughout this series. Some aha kind of moments. I've told you a thousand times, I do this thing, this talking thing, I do this for me. This is what I, this is, I need this. And I'm pleased that you get to listen in. But I'm thinking, what about all of this great stuff that I've, I've learned through this series, looking at the way that Jesus overcomes shame and fear and guilt. I've got to tell you that for most of my Christian life, I became a Christian at 19, I'm now 40, more than half my life, I have been weighed down with shame. And like, like carrying it around like a, like a backpack. And uh, mainly around my teen years. Don't need to be any more specific than that. Just all the teen years, I just accumulated shame for myself and for my family and my community. Just really 
Shameful stuff. You know what I saw when we looked at this and we saw the story of the prodigal son? And we saw that this story taught in a Middle Eastern context is really about shame and honor. I had identified with him, the son, the younger son, the rebellious son. I had identified with him so strongly. It was part of the reason I became a Christian was because I saw that story and I saw myself. And I had identified so much with the son up until the point where his father receives him. All the bad stuff. And then the sort of coming to himself moment resonated with that. But that story demonstrates Jesus' power over shame to restore our honour. Because when the father runs down the road to meet the younger son who's returning home from his years with prostitutes and drinking and parties and starvation, shame, he doesn't just forgive him. He puts a ring on his finger, probably a family crest. You belong here. A robe on his back, an emblem of honor. He throws a party for his son. God, through Jesus' death in our place, through his willing embrace of the most shameful death he could die, exchanges our shame for honour. So for each one of us here this morning, rather than feeling this kind of compulsive need to defend ourselves, to defend our honour, to accumulate status, Rather than carrying all of that, we can simply receive the ring and the robe and walk into the party. You get that? You know, I have also struggled for even longer than that, struggled with great fear, uh, with the fear of death. I don't mean the reality of death. I'm quite happy that I'm going to die one day. I believe that I will receive eternal life because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm very interested in living forever in a new creation. Me and my kids and my wife talk about it all the time. We've got things stacked up for eternity to do. India's got this really particular image of sitting by the sea, eating watermelon and spitting pips into the ocean where sharks are going to come and eat them and not eat her, because that doesn't happen in the new creation. I love that. So the death thing, it's just a doorway to awesomeness as far as I'm concerned. I'm talking about the dying thing. The process of dying terrifies me. Ever since I saw my mum degenerate over months as cancer ate her body from the inside, I saw her die as a just-turned-eight-year-old kid. Ever since I saw that, I constantly am aware of a premonition I have that I too will die that way. Like, I'm fairly sure... You can replay this in a few years' time, just check. I'm fairly sure that that's the way I'm going. Going young and, and going in the worst possible way. 
I even have these physical manifestations of all of this. Like I have these lipomas. I know you've noticed. Lipoma, like they're, they're, all they are are little fatty deposits under my skin. Um, they're benign. And I don't know, I, I kind of made peace with them, so I'm not that worried about them. But they are little emblems, premonitions of something far more sinister, the cancer that lurks within. There's this French philosopher, Luc Ferry. He's an atheist, but he wrote an introduction to thinking. It's really good. If you want to learn more about why we think the way that we do, it's a really good introduction. He says great things about Christianity, by the way, even from an atheistic perspective. Um, forget what the book's called now. Anyway, Luke Ferry, L-U-C, and then Ferry, like the boat. Anyway, he says all religions and human philosophies, and you would include worldviews, fear, shame, uh, sorry, honor, shame, fear, power, guilt, innocence, all these things have been constructed by an anxious humanity in response to the reality of death. All that we're doing all the time is in some way responding to the reality of death and our imminent demise. Tell you what I loved learning during that week on fear and power, that Jesus has overcome all of our enemies, Satan, sin and death, all the powers that are arranged in the universe that oppose us. I didn't read it at the time, but this is a great one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15 says, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, that is we're weak, we die, we get cancer and lumps and pimples and... Terrible things happen to us. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's what he did on the cross. And it was made proof positive by the resurrection. All right, last one. Guilt, uh, guilt and uh, innocence, innocence and guilt. Here's, here's what I've learned. I've learned that my relentless pursuit of my pure self which is always going on. It's the reason I'm so frustrated that I'm not who I want to be and that my wife isn't who I want her to be, my kids are not who I want them to be, and none of you guys are what I want you to be. You're all massive disappointments. (laughs) I've learned that the pursuit of the ideal person somewhere out there is an illusion, but... It won't always be. That in conquering Satan, sin and death, in rising to new creation life, Jesus is the forerunner for all of his brothers and sisters. Jesus, perfect in every way, glorified forever, is a picture of who I will be. 
not just bodily resurrection, but even my personality with all of its kinks and distortions will be renewed. 1 John chapter 3 is what it says. Dear friends, hear this, dear friends. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. We're doing what we can. We're doing what we can with what we've got. We're doing what we can with what we've got, which is the best that we've got. But on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus paid it all. Now he invites us to apply all of this to our lives and to live in the victory of his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, this is the greatest day. Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. New creation Sunday. I simply pray, Lord, that as we go out from this place, and even maybe as we stand now to lift our voices, I pray that we would let go of some of those mechanisms that we've put in place to deal with the reality of a broken world, to deal with the reality of death, to deal with the reality of shame and fear and guilt. May we lay some of those things down and rather take up the call of the resurrected Christ that by the power of your spirit we may live in resurrection power. We may see the world through the eyes of resurrection hope and that we would know, Lord, that you're coming again to invite us into resurrection life. Thank you. We love you for all that you've done. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.